0: A podcast series looking at the spread of COVID-19 as it continues to affect Ireland and the international world in a growing capacity. On today's podcast, we look at the checkered past of working from home and Ireland's criteria changes for ICU.
1: I'm in the
2: intensive care unit. I can't breathe without this. If anyone still smokes, put the cigarettes down. Because I'm telling you now, you need your fucking lungs. None of you take any chances, because if it gets really bad, (laughs) then you're gonna end up here.
0: That was footage from Tara Jane Langston, a British woman who recorded a harrowing message from ICU last month after getting a very severe reaction from the virus. Intensive care unit capacity has been one of the focal points in Ireland's approach to combating this outbreak, and a huge emphasis since day one has been made in maximizing that number. So shortly we will be joined by the Irish sons Adam Higgins to speak about a patient evaluation process at major hospitals along the west coast of Ireland that ranks patients numerically by age, medical conditions and sometimes by gender in a bid to prioritise ICU capacity. Then later on in the podcast we will also take a look at the checkered past of working and discuss whether a cultural move towards remote work is something that only benefits the privileged in society, and we do so with historian and writer Helen McCarthy. But first, here is Adam to speak about Ireland's critical care capacity.
1: So, this story comes from a document that has been developed by SAILTO, the hospital group, which runs hospitals in Galway, Cork, Roscommon, and other places out on the west. And the document was prepared and handed to their critical care teams across all the different hospitals and it is advisory for doctors to help guide them when it comes to pressure in the icu units so when it comes to deciding who gets to go into icu units this would help guide the doctors through that process
0: it being a points-based system can you talk us through then what those points actually entail and how they will be calibrated so
1: the system is put in place to decide who goes into the icu units for Uh, heavy treatments such as intubation and mechanical ventilation, which can be very invasive processes and, and can be difficult to come off of. So the point system tallies up to help doctors decide whether someone can survive that process. So for example, it goes with your age. So if you get eight points altogether, you're deemed a poor candidate for intensive care, such as intubation and mechanical ventilation. So men in the age of 50 and 60, would get one point on their scorecard. Women between the age of 50 and 60 get zero points, and then it goes up from there. So 61 to 65 is two points for men and one for women, 66 to 70, three points for men and two for women, and, and so on up to once you're over the age of 70, you get seven points either way. And then in order to reach the eight points that would deem a poor candidate, there's other situations such as pre-existing health conditions. For example, hypertension in cardiovascular patients would be one point. Dementia is two points. Advanced Parkinson is three points. And then obesity as well as on a, on a scale of your age as well from one point up to six points if you're over 60 and you have obesity. So if you hit the eight points, what happens is doctors would advise that you're a poor candidate for these invasive and, and heavy treatments. The document does clarify that those patients that are deemed poor candidates for ICU can still benefit from uh, aggressive treatments and heavy advanced nursing, but that they shouldn't be going to mechanical ventilation or to be intubated because they may not survive the process.
0: Do we know much about whether this point based system has been used in the past or whether it's replicable to pre-COVID-19 conditions?
1: Well it's a good question because one thing to remember in all this is that the families are always consulted so a doctor would sit down with the family and explain to them the process of going into intensive care and what would happen when it comes to intubation and mechanical ventilation and it's important to say that a lot of families would decide then that they don't want their loved one going through all that if the if the chance of them of them getting out of it is so low so they don't want to put them through these invasive treatments so it's important to say that from the outset because we did speak to a lot of doctors from hospitals across the country who explained to us that at this situation a family some families don't want to put their loved ones through that sort of a thing uh, and end to their life if that's the way it's going to be and when it comes to has this been in place before this rule sheet as far as we can see the scoring system was only developed because there's an anticipated rise in people needing ICU treatment so that demand wouldn't have been there in ICU in the past.
0: And what has the public reaction mean to this? Has there been much concern that this might discriminate against the elderly community or else people living with underlying conditions?
1: Well originally when we came across the document there was concerns that it was weighted against elderly people so for example We've all seen the stories in the past of 80-year-old men who can still run marathons and that sort of thing. So that person would still be a good candidate to go into ICU because they may very well get off the ventilation in the future. But it's important to say that these are guidelines. These are not rules from the HSC or sales. These are guidelines for doctors to help them decide. So if a consultant, for example, is sitting with a patient who, who they think would be a good candidate for these invasive procedures and could come out of it, then it's up to them and the family to to make that decision. These are only guidelines. And we spoke to a source in Dublin's Matter Hospital who told us that over the past few weeks, the majority of their patients in ICU have been in their 50s, but they have had patients admitted in their 70s that have still gone to ICU and, and worked through the process.
0: In the past number of weeks, we have all had to adopt two major lifestyle changes, and with no clear messages of when lockdown might end, many are questioning whether the new normal is workable in the long term. Aside from social changes, a huge proportion of Ireland's active workforce are now having to adapt their skills to fit their home environment. For some people, this new professional landscape has allowed for a more relaxed approach to working life, but for the less fortunate, remote working could resurface issues of childcare and poor working conditions that deprived much of the workforce nearly 50 years ago. Helen McCarthy is a Guardian contributor and author of Double Lives, a history of working motherhood.
2: I think the latest statistics suggest that something like 5% of the workforce before the coronavirus were working at home as their main workplace, but well over a quarter of the workforce had some experience of homeworking, so had been doing some form of of homework uh, in the previous year. So it's a form of work which has become increasingly popular, although not something that everyone was doing every day uh, before the coronavirus struck.
0: In the 1970s and 1980s, the prospect of telework or remote working came into the cultural psyche for the first time and garnered a lot of interest as a new lifestyle choice.
2: This was the idea that network computers So it was very much driven by new information technology could link up workers in the home to central offices, thus reducing the need for people to be commuting into work. And the idea was that this might give people more autonomy, more control over the pace of work. They'd be able to blend family life and working life more harmoniously. I mean, it has to be said that it was a relatively unusual of working at this point, I mean, there was a lot of excitement about it, a lot of futurologists and management gurus writing excitedly about the possibilities. But it was being embraced by corporations on a fairly small scale, initially, partly because the technology was quite expensive and difficult to organise. But I think also because there was some reluctance amongst managers about losing the direct control that they have over employees. Uh, when they are physically all congregated together in a central office. So in a sense, the reality didn't match some of the techno-utopian rhetoric that uh, that was proliferating in those decades.
0: Can you speak about some of the other caveats that became apparent after, I suppose, this first spell of homework?
2: Homeworking had a very different set of associations in the 70s and 80s to do with sweated, low-paid industrial work, the kind of work that uh, women had been doing back in the 19th century, things like stitching shirt collars um, or buttons onto men's uh, clothes, uh, things like mending sacks or making boxes. And this form of homework was very strongly associated with exploitation and with sweating. And there was a concern in the 1970s and 80s that alongside the rise of this rather futuristic telework, um, there was a resurgence in these um, much less attractive forms of of homework. Um, So the debate over homework in the 70s and 80s, in a sense, swirled around these two very different visions of what homeworking actually meant. And trade unions were particularly concerned about how homeworking whether it was white-collar telework, or whether it was manufacturing, homeworking, being paid at very, very low rates, um, would erode workers' rights and would give employers an opportunity to shirk the responsibilities that they had towards their employees around proper wages, around protection against dismissal, around entitlements to sick pay, to maternity pay, to paid holiday, um, and all of those sorts of rights, which workers had fought very hard for throughout the 20th century. So there was this sort of worry that homeworking would allow employers to contract out services and functions and would sort of push all of those responsibilities onto home workers who would then be sort of set up as self-employed Um, individuals rather than employees.
0: The idea of home working can be quite an attractive prospect if the employee has the facilities and resources to do so. But for many people, working from home creates an additional burden to an already stressful work environment. There is a concern that a move towards a remote working culture might only benefit the privileged and well-off sections of society.
2: I think it's going to be very interesting going forward because the lockdown has meant that millions of people who had been regularly going into workplaces, into offices, into factories, um, are now working from home. And this may have the effect of normalising remote working practices in corporations where that had not been part of the culture. And there could be some positive aspects to that, insofar as home-based work can offer greater flexibility, particularly for women, um, for people with caring responsibilities, being able to work at home uh, can uh, be hugely helpful in terms of sort of keeping your career going, and making things fit together. Um, but, you know, and I can, I can sort of testify to this myself as having been, you know, housebound for the past month. Um, it can also, people may also be experiencing the downsides of home working, the sense of isolation, of exclusion, uh, the feeling that um, if you're not working uh, collectively with your colleagues, there's a lack of, of human contact of structure to the day. There's a very strong emphasis on the home workers who uh, have self-discipline, to um, find ways of keeping uh, focus, of, of, of maintaining a sense of momentum and delivering the goods at the end of the day. Whereas, of course, in an office, you have downtime, you have colleagues to act as a sounding board and all of those things you don't have when you're home based. So in some ways, being forced to work at home might make people more aware of the pleasures but it may also make people aware of the potential downsides of being based at home.
0: In your article you wrote about the disadvantages young mothers in particular faced from a working at home environment. Are these still going to be prevalent in current day if we do see a resurgence of it and if so what needs to be ironed out to make sure that many women who are working from home aren't stuck in this scenario where they can only work at home maybe for lower pay or else just not work at all?
2: (laughs) The history of home working shows us that a lot of women who did work at home did not do so necessarily out of choice. They did so because it was the only way that they could hang on to their careers or they could find the flexibility that they needed to balance their work commitments with their caring responsibilities. And many of the surveys that were carried out um, in the 1980s and 1990s showed that these women had affordable, high-quality, flexible childcare been available, or had greater flexibility been on offer from their employers, they would not have chosen to base themselves at home and, in fact, would have preferred to have a normal, conventional office job because they were aware of what they were missing out on, the sense that their career prospects were suffering from being isolated in the home and the lack of contact with colleagues. So I think that in terms of the present day, how things will evolve, I think we have to keep our eyes very, very closely on how the coronavirus lockdown is affecting men and women differently. I mean, we know, I think, from anecdotal sort of impressionistic evidence that women are more likely to be stepping back from their jobs, taking unpaid leave in order to look after children who are off school. Mothers may be uh, involuntarily furloughed in greater numbers than men. I think the Fawcett Society, the Gender Equality Pressure Group, has been collecting some evidence of that. But on the other hand, we also know that women are very much in the front line as key workers in the NHS and care workers in care homes. And those, of course, are the kinds of jobs which are not amenable to home working, where contact is absolutely integral to what those jobs are. So I think we have to keep a careful, watchful eye, as I say, on how the coronavirus lockdown and its aftermath will affect women's economic status, both at home uh, and in the workplace.
0: That is all from episode 17 of Viral COVID-19. I would like to thank the Irish sons Adam Higgins and Helen McCarthy, author of Double Lives, A History of Working Motherhood. We will be back tomorrow with more insight on Ireland's approach to the COVID-19 crisis. I'm Ian Doyle. I'll speak to you then.
1: Planning for your next trip?